now we have a red light and the time is ticking. So here we are, Abnormal Psychology. This is part two of chapter 10 um, in our book. It's chapter 10. It's Schizophrenia. So we're going to make our way through. We do have some films I want to show at the end. So we're going to go ahead and get started. What's that? We did this slide. Right. We did this slide. This is where we left off. So it is the slide that I pulled up. If you remember, there were five phases or stages or patterns, if you will, of uh, schizophrenia. And so that's what this research kind of suggested. Again, you know, if you wanted to have a pattern of schizophrenia, course one, probably the best the worst being course five. So stuff to think about. If you don't know what course one and course five is, listen to the end of the previous recording. So what else do we know? Well, we know psychotic disorders, specifically schizophrenia, says although most cases have an onset in the late teens to mid thirties, schizophrenia can be diagnosed at any age. Now that's new because we didn't really talk about diagnosing schizophrenia prior to age 13 because it's such a how do I want to put this? It's such a strong label. Schizophrenia, our belief is it doesn't go away in general. Even that course one that you saw where a person has one schizophrenic break, you know, and then it goes away, we would still say it's in, it's in remission. We wouldn't say that the person never had it. It's just in remission. We know that there are rates for comorbid substance-related disorders, especially nicotine dependence, and we know those are quite high. We know the risk of suicide is also elevated. Up to 20% make at least one suicide attempt. And again, think about it. I'm, you're someone who your sense of reality is different than everybody else's. That, of course, is going to cause trouble for you. About 5 to 10% eventually succeed at committing suicide. Um, schizophrenia is slightly more common in males than females. And most estimates put the prevalence rate about 1% of the population. DSM-5 gives, gives some somewhat lower estimates. They suggest that maybe it's only 0.3 or 0.7% of the population. But as a rule of thumb, we've always said about 1% of the population is about, again, the, the prevalence rates. Some subtypes. Now, earlier versions of the DSM um, classified schizophrenia by its subtype. So you could have paranoid schizophrenia or disorganized schizophrenia or catatonic schizophrenia, undifferentiated or residual. But in DSM-5, we kind of got rid of that. What we found was there was a lot of overlap between the categories, so it didn't make sense to have these separate categories when you had so much overlap, right? They didn't seem to be, these subtypes didn't seem to be stable reliable or valid, right? And they added very little to treatment. Like, does it matter if you're paranoid schizophrenia or you're undifferentiated schizophrenia? Not really, the treatment's going to be the same regardless. So those subtypes were kind of removed. Um, some perspectives on schizophrenia spectra um, is that other tip, uh, typologies are considered in schizophrenia. When we look at it now, we don't say, again, paranoid schizophrenia or whatever, but we do say process or reactive schizophrenia or type 1 and type 2 schizophrenia. And we also look at pre-morbid adjustment levels. So how was the person doing before the break occurred? And that's the best way I can describe that 
that period of time that includes the prodromal, you know, active and residual phase. All right, so let's take a look at these. What's the difference between process and reactive schizophrenia? All right, so process schizophrenia is characterized by early and gradual onset of symptoms because it progresses. So think about that word, progress, right? So, or process, think progress, right? So it progresses over time. And of course, if it's slower like this, an earlier onset, then the perception is it's more chronic and it's not gonna go away. So there's a poorer prognosis for recovery because this has been a part of this person from early onset and gradually they've been slipping away. Reactive schizophrenia is characterized by relatively normal social and intellectual development. Everything seems to be fine, and you see this in some cases. Like, everything might be, seem to be fine until they're in their late teens. And then all of a sudden, some abrupt form of acute reaction, frequently in, in response to known life stressors, occurs, and the person um, has such a, a, a big occurrence in their life that they lose, lose touch with reality. Now, if it's stressor-induced, and that's what we're talking about here, like some kind of trigger, some kind of acute reaction, then the prognosis is better. Because this wasn't a long-standing pattern. Does that make sense? This wasn't something that they seemed to develop over time. Again, it seems to be something that had some kind of reaction. So if we get away with that reaction, if we give better coping skills, maybe they can have better prognosis. So it kind of makes sense. So that's what we're talking about here. We also have type one and type two schizophrenia. Type one schizophrenia describes cases of the disorder in which positive symptoms predominate. And positive symptoms are symptoms that are added to the person. That's the way to remember positive symptoms. Symptoms added to the person. They weren't there before. So hallucinations, right? Delusions, they weren't there before. They're added to the person. So positive symptoms tend to go away with treatment. Type one, which includes more positive symptoms, tends to be a more treatable condition. So that's what we know. Type two, schizophrenia, describes um, cases in the disorder in which um, there's more negative symptoms. And negative symptoms think remove or take away from the person. So a negative symptom is something like flat affect, avolition, which is a lack of emotion, elagia, which is a lack of words or lack of thought, and then social withdrawal. So it's stuff being removed from the person. So they, you know, they with, withdraw from society. They, again, seem to have a lack of being able to respond or enjoy things or anything. That tends to be more predicative of a more chronic and longer um, case, if you will. So again, that tends to be something that's not as treatable. So if you were going to, nowadays, if we're going to talk about schizophrenia, what would you want? You'd want reactive type 1 schizophrenia. Because reactive means some stressor has caused it. Type 1 means more positive symptoms than negative symptoms and tends to be, have a higher prognosis for success. What you don't want is to be process 
type 2 schizophrenia, which again is more gradual onset and then more negative symptoms. So just to kind of give you an idea. What about um, another, that third area? So what type of schizophrenia? What are the predominant symptoms of schizophrenia? And the third area is this premorbid adjustment. So if they have a low premorbid adjustment, in other words, before the onset of schizophrenia, if they had a low functioning level, a low adjustment level, then they tend to have poor prognosis. And let's take a look at what that means. So low premorbid adjustment involves such characteristics like never being married, never worked at one job for two years or more, no academic or vocational training after high school, no steady dating as a teenager, never been deeply in love. And that sure sounds like, again, withdrawal from social interactions you would expect, right? So it seems more like the negative side of symptoms. Never, 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 never having any of these things. Some more negative side, right? Um, I worked with a guy who was um, a drug and alcohol client and a mental health client. Um, when I was doing drug and alcohol work, he uh, was the football star of the little town that he grew up in. He had you know, four touchdowns in one game, the highest yards ever rushing um, for the year, for the high school. And then he graduated from high school, something happened, he had a break. Um, he ended up you know, flashing uh, little kids on the school bus as they went by his house. He started getting involved with alcohol. And so in this little town that everyone knew him, he now became the town drunk and, and the mental health person. And so he ended up with schizophrenia. You know, so he never made it to college, never, you know, maybe had this potential. Like he was the star. And then it all changed. And when I was working with him, he was in his 40s and, you know, no one in town would sell him alcohol because they all knew what would happen and everyone was scared of him and all that kind of stuff. And, and it was sad and a sad outcome when you, you think about as a teenager, he had such promise. And, and then, but again, did he have, did he really date too much before then? No. Did he really have, hold down a job after that? No. I mean, he did football. That was it. But he really didn't have much else. So pre-morbid um, patients or poor pre-morbid patients are more deviant in their language and thought processes. They possibly have a stronger genetic disposition to the disorder. And so again, think about it. I have strange thoughts and language. No wonder I can't hold down a job. No wonder I don't have long-term dating partners. No wonder I've never been in love. I've been odd. I mean, I hate to say that, but I've been odd all my life. So in some ways that has kept people at bay. It's kept people away from me. Remember the schizotypal personality disorder, the one that wants interaction, but they're so odd, they're so strange that they just, in all areas of their life, they just don't fit in? Again, we know that there seems to be a link between schizotypal or schizotypal personality disorder and schizophrenia. And so maybe that's the genetic component. The outcomes, here's the outcomes for the diagnosis of schizophrenia. Well, rapid or acute onset of positive and florid symptoms occurring later in life with someone with good premorbid adjustment. In other words, 
they've been functioning well their whole life, then they have this really vivid kind of break that's noticeable, that seems to be you know, very rapid or acute with its onset, that's associated with better prognosis. Again, think about it. Type one, reactive schizophrenia. More positive prognosis, that's what we see. Um, that tends to be better than that gradual insidious onset, right? That has that poor premorbid level. What are some other psychotic disorders according to the DSM-5? Well, here they are, right? Some other specified schizophrenic spectrum and other psychotic disorders are shared psychotic disorder. That's where someone has a break from reality and maybe they have a significant other or a partner and those people or even family that buy in to that break. Does that make sense? So in some words, they may end up with what's called shared psychotic disorder. They share in the delusion. I told you guys about my uncle who believes we didn't land on the moon. His wife is very strongly supportive of that perception. He also doesn't eat corn because he says it's just there to fatten livestock. So why would you want to be heavy? Why do you eat corn? So of course she agrees with that wholeheartedly. And the two of them together, again, he would have probably delusional disorder and she would have shared psychotic disorder. The next one is psychotic disorder due to a general medical condition. What if you had a severe case of syphilis, which then can cause an infection in the brain and then can cause you to have a break from reality? Could, could that be an occurrence? Sure, now we know syphilis is treatable now, but what about you know, other disorders that then might cause, you know, a super high fever that maybe triggers some kind of psychosis or delusions or delirium. And then we have substance medication induced psychotic disorder. So again, it's caused by some substance, by some medication. And so sometimes we see that. Some factors in schizophrenia, some causal factors. Well, we know that biology um, can be a factor. There seems to be a heredity component, a neurochemistry component. Um, some neuroanatomy that seems to be associated with it. We'll go through as we, we kind of cruise along here. There's some environmental factors that could come into play. Um, expressed emotion within a family structure can actually impact um, whether a person gets schizophrenia or relapses or not. And there's even some psychosocial factors. Again, some family influences on family dynamics. Some socioeconomic influences. There is a suggestion. One of the things that we see is people with schizophrenia tend to be in a lower socioeconomic level. So there's two theories to explain that. One is called the downward drift theory. So the person's functioning at a much higher level, but they have a break. Now remember, schizophrenia is six months long in its duration, from prodromal through active to the residual phase. Six months. Imagine if you were falling apart for six months. Do you think you're going to be able to maintain your economic status? No. You're going to fall, you're going to fall from that higher status. So the downward drift theory is that people start up at a higher level, but because of the schizophrenia, they drift downward in socioeconomic levels. So that's one theory. The second one's called the breeder hypothesis, that poverty, that the stress of being poor, 
that the stress of not having your needs met breathes an environment that allows schizophrenia to take hold. So it kind of is like borderline depression to be an onset too, and then? I mean, depression, I would say that the, which came first, the depression or the schizophrenia? Remember, you could have depression with like a psychotic break, postpartum depression with psychosis, right? But again, then the primary problem is depression. You could have schizophrenia with depression. That was what we might call co or a schizoaffective disorder. It's kind of a blending of a mood disorder and schizophrenia. But in that case, the schizophrenia came first. So I get where you're coming from, but I think it's more rather than the depression of being poor, it's the pressure of being poor. Okay. Of not, you know, of not knowing where your next living situation is going to be. And I wonder if some of that has to do with even housing choices like where people end up living, whether they end up living on the street, and does that extra stress then bring about this potential that was there? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah good question. <clears throat> so let's go ahead and take a look. From a biological standpoint, schizophrenia occurs significantly higher rates in close relatives of a schizophrenic individual than the normal population. So if you have a parent who's got schizophrenia, higher chances that you'll get it than a normal population. You got an uncle, you got an aunt, you got a sibling, higher chances than in the normal population. If both your parents have schizophrenia, much higher chance than the normal population. Remember, normal population is about 1%. If one of your parents has schizophrenia, it drops up, jumps up to about 20%. So that's a significant increase. So obviously, there's something heredity, genetic, neurochemistry. Does it make sense? Yeah, question. Um, I just had a question from a little like earlier. Sure. Um, when I was working in mental health, one of my clients, like he had had a family, like he was a Baptist preacher and he had worked like at this like really nice company mm -hmm. and then like just like randomly got sick, but he's been living in the program since 94. Right. So like sometimes like do they just like happen to like just stay sick or mm -hmm. like and that's of the, if you remember those co courses that we talked about at the very end of last class course five a person has a break and they never come back so here's this person they're living you know they're in a higher socioeconomic level yeah, everything so right yeah. everything's great he's a he's a preacher he's got a family everything looks awesome he's working for a company Something happens, whatever that might be, some trigger, maybe some predisposition that somehow got unlocked. And now when they had their break, not only did they fall, but they never came back. And in about 10% of the cases, that's what we see. And it doesn't help that, like, like he'll take his medication, but he doesn't want to go to therapy. He doesn't right. want to do any of that right. stuff. Right, so he's taken the medication, but he's withdrawn in others. So his unwillingness to interact is more of a negative symptom. And again, the stronger the negative symptoms, the withdrawal from social interactions, the poorer the prognosis. And you can see that because the medication takes away the positive symptoms, yeah, like... but the negative symptoms are still there. That's the withdrawal. That's the pulling them within oneself. Yeah. Good questions. So that's some of the stuff we see. We see first-degree relatives have a risk of developing schizophrenia that is 10 times greater than that of the general population, right? So that's some of the stuff that we see. In fact, 
I don't know if I have a chart in here. I don't. So we'll just kind of have to go along. Sorry, I don't have a chart in here. Now, what about based on twin studies? We can talk about twin studies, right? Here's what we know. We know the current concordance rate. In other words, if one twin has schizophrenia for identical twins, the chances the second twin will develop schizophrenia is about 48%. Now, that's a stat that's been, in, if you look in every abnormal psych book, you see that. What's really kind of interesting is that some of those rates might actually be overstated. There was a, st a, st uh, a study done in 1994 that concluded that concurrence rates for identical twins was only about 28%. And the difference seems to occur. This is what we seem to think now, that if they share the same embryonic sac, it's as high as 48%. If they develop in two separate sacs, it drops down to 28%. But remember the concurrence rates, the, the you know, occurrence rates in the general population is 1%. So this is still 28% versus 1%. So that's still a significant impact, right? And notice that the concurrence rates for fraternal twins, dizygotic, two separate genetic makeups, about 6%. Again, still higher than the general population, but definitely way lower. Yeah. Right, one twin did and the other one. And again, that's what we don't understand. There's obviously a biological component. You know, if, even if you say 48%, or even if you say 28%, there's a biological component. What allows one person to develop it and the other person to stay clear? That we don't know. We don't know. I mean, I wish we, I wish we did. I think if we could figure that out, that would go a long way in, in preventing schizophrenia in the future. Um, 1995, Davis, Phelps, and Braca found that MZ twins, so monozygotic twins, without evidence of having the shared placenta, showed about 10% concordance rate. So again, uh, and those with shared placenta may be as high as 60%. So we'll just go back to about 50%, right, is estimated for identical twins if shared placenta and again, around 28 or 20% will go. We'll split the difference. We'll say about 20% when we talk about they're grown in two separate placentas. So they're obviously environmental factors are at play. That's what, we, that's what we know. Researchers looking for marker genes have implicated multiple sites on at least 10 different chromosomes. So we can't even find one gene or one set of chromosomes that seems to be related to this. There's no single gene that's been consistently associated with an increased risk for schizophrenia. 1993, Cromwell noted that 89% of schizophrenics have no known relative with schizophrenia. So even though there's a high rate, back in at least 1993, so what does that lead us to believe that maybe schizophrenia is like autism. Maybe it's a broad spectrum with multiple causes and multiple variations. Does that kind of make sense? So we can't say one specific cause. There's multiple causes. They have similar symptoms. They have similar outcomes. 
but their causes are so varied. So here's just some problems with schizophrenia and, or some biological findings and then some problems with it. So this is research in the 90s, but still, right? So disturbed functioning in the dopamine system, that was suspected as being the cause because we know that dopamine in excess causes hallucination. In absence causes Parkinson's you know, disease. So could that also be like catatonia and schizophrenia? Possibly. But what we know is a large majority or minority, a large minority of people with schizophrenia do not respond to antipsychotic medication that affect dopamine. So if it is dopamine related, why aren't they responding to treatment of dopamine? It's obviously a problem. We know that other effective me medications like clozapine um, work primarily on serotonin rather than dopamine. So I thought we just said dopamine, now we're saying serotonin. There's no consistency, that's what you're gonna find. Neuroleptics that block dopamine receptors quickly, but then we see lack of, of response to symptoms for weeks. So what's going on? Why does it take so long to see symptom relief? Because again, maybe it's not dopamine. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's dopamine in connection with something else. <clears throat> Ventricular enlargement. Those butterfly ventricles that you see in brain scans of people with schizophrenia, guess what? The differences are relatively small when compared with control groups, and it's reported in only 6 to 40% of patients with schizophrenia. So even that. Even that um, um, doesn't, doesn't pan out. Diminished uh, volume of the frontal or temporal lobes. Again, differences are relatively small. And notice, about 50% of patients with schizophrenia fall within the normal range of the control group. So that explains that for maybe 50%, well, what about the other half? It doesn't. Um, low relative glucose metabolism in the frontal lobe areas. Mm, again, when we do look at this, it seems like the, the participants in the study are on heavy neuroleptics. Maybe it's the medication that's causing that, not the schizophrenia, right? So again, maybe, maybe that's it. And what we know is that sometimes, even after taking them off the meds, sometimes there's some reduced flow even after just being on the med for a period of time can cause that change. That seems to be more permanent, so what's the deal? And then the final one, cognitive dysfunctions, visual processing, attentional problems, recall, memory problems. What we know is, again, it's not specific to just schizophrenia. Yeah? In instances where they're giving medication like that, where it's wishy-washy, is the reason that they still give medications to have those kinds of things happening because it's better than the alternative of not giving them anything? Mm -hmm. If we can get some. Some of, it's just a, some of it's just a random shoot. Which medication do I put you on? I'm going to try this. Does it reduce some of the symptoms? Yes. Then that's better than you functioning with all of them. So again, some of it's a little bit of a grab bag. It really is. I'm going to use what works with most of my patients, what worked with you in the past, and then I'm going to adjust it as I need to. Yeah. And then there, there is like the new genetic testing to see what would work better for people so that they don't have to like try all medications, but it's still like really new and yeah. really expensive and yeah. insurance companies don't really cover it. Right. Because it's much easier to just test you out on medications for a couple weeks and if that doesn't work, then go and do genetic testing. So we're coming up with some tests 
But again, even genetic testing, what markers do I look for? There's not one that you can point to. It, it makes it tough, doesn't it? We're still learning. And this is such an impactful disorder. That's one of the reasons why we have to be very careful with giving labels. I'm very cautious about labeling kids with schizophrenia. Incredibly cautious. So I, I'm just throwing that out there. Yeah. How do you get, like, if you, is there ever a way to have a label removed? Not necessarily, because it's always there. It's always in your records. Remember, there's just like your credit record, you have a healthcare record here in the United States. There are agencies that have compiled all of the uh, medications you've ever been on, all of the diagnoses you've ever been labeled with. If you think that that doesn't occur with the way that information is shared, I think that you're naive. What are they doing with said information? Oh, it's not that's just like data catching. Don't know. Hopefully, if they're ethical, nothing. But I can't answer that. I can't answer that. What are they doing with your credit report? Did you ever give them, do you ever give them permission to monitor your credit in any way, shape, or form? Never. And yet we're controlled by three credit unions. You know, three credit, not unions, but reporting, you know. Who gave them the right? Just something to think about. Just letting you know. So what about uh, some other explanations, right? Some other explanations. How about some environmental causes? Guess what? There's a viral risk hypothesis that suggests that schizophrenia may be caused in utero during prenatal development because the mom got a virus. Especially true, what we seem to suspect is during the, the second trimester where again, the brain kind of organization is occurring, that's what we seem to see. So during the second trimester, moms who had some kind of viral infection seems to be a higher likelihood of schizophrenia. Buka et al. Uh, in 2008 reported that offspring of mothers who were infected with the herpes simplex virus at the end of pregnancy were at an increased risk for later development of schizophrenia. So again, another virus explanation and the findings of higher concordance rates in monochloric um, and dichloronic, uh, sorry, uh, monozygotic twins um, are consistent with these hypotheses as well. So again, you know, think about the cholerky baby, right? Having some kind of exposure to some kind of outside viral influence seems to be supported by research, but not in all cases. Again, there's no smoking gun. Even this doesn't explain everything. What are some other things, right? Well, maybe some uh, complications during the uh, pregnancy, maybe some reduced head circumference, some minor physical abnormalities of the head or limbs, all seem to be significantly associated with individuals who later became schizophrenic, but it's not a smoking gun. What caused those things? Again, there's some other cause underneath and we don't know. Um, again, viral or bacterial infection right, serious enough to warrant hospitalization, especially during childhood, seems to be associated with a 50% increase of developing schizophrenia. So after the baby's born, and they're in childhood and they get exposed to some kind of nasty virus or infection, seems to increase the likelihood. Poor academic achievement and social adjustment in adolescent years 
also seems to preset or you know precede, I should say, schizophrenia. So again, is that process schizophrenia? Is it a sign of process that they're doing poorly in high school? Is it the stressor of high school that that's breeding some kind of schizophrenic uh, break? It's just a lot of questions. Some neo-Freudians propose that the central features of schizophrenogenic mothers, so mothers who mix love and affection with rejection, that's what they called it. In fact, back in the day, we used to say that schizophrenogenic mothers caused schizophrenia, that mothering, bad mothering in some way, right? You know, so they're extremely overprotective, intrusive, controlling. Murray um, Bowen directly observed an interaction of families that included schizophrenic children and prescribed a phenomenon he called as the transfer of anxiety. So that one member of an overtly attached relationship functioned at a level less than the person's capacity. And that other individuals also function in this inadequate or uh, overadequate fashion. So again, growing up in kind of a schizophrenic or a family that's really disruptive, does that breed an environment that causes disruption in thinking and brain? There's no real clear answers. Some other ones, right? We've got Theodore Litz and his colleagues in 1965. So this is some older research. Conducted, or conducted intensive studies of families of 17 schizophrenic patients and found whole family psychopathology. So it was the family that breeded or brought about this schizophrenic break. Again, this isn't genetic. Maybe it's the family in combination with some genetic predisposition. I tend to like that explanation much better, right? And Litz especially emphasized the transmission of irrationality that occurred in such families, where families deny or distort obvious interpretations of experience. They act as though certain disturbing situations didn't exist. They talk to each other in vague, uh, um, fragmented ways, and they're impervious to a child's own feelings or desires. So emotionally detached from the child, they're talking in odd ways. Is it almost, dare I say, a learned situation? You grew up in an environment that's odd. Do you then learn the oddness? Does it shape the way you see the world? Yeah. But if it's a learn, say you're taking that, that as, like, say you accept that. Sure. It's a learned thing. Why then is treatment not beneficial if you can not unlearn, but if you can relearn or learn something else? Because I think part of the suspicion would be that you have learned this pattern for 20 years. Your brain has almost been wired in this new pattern of looking at the world. You know, think about all the wiring that happens prior to age 10, even prior to age 5. How you view the world, your value system, your belief. By the time you're a teenager, you have started to establish your own values and views of the world. Could it be that those views are now skewed? And what does it take to break that? A lot. You're right. Again, and it may be so much work that you just don't have the ability to do it. So again, these are some of the things we have to consider. 
The double bind theory, this is another family theory. And what it suggests is that a child is emotionally dependent upon a parent. Therefore, it's extremely uh, important to understand uh, communication and respond appropriately. The parent expresses two contradictory messages. So I say I love you, but the whole time my facial expression looks like I'm pissed. Oh no, no, I'm happy. You're just fine. Everything's great. I'm so glad that you're here. And the whole time the face gives this opposite impression. Does that make sense? So again, you're, you're in a double bind. You want to trust your parents, but then you're getting cues that you can't trust them. You grow up in that kind of double bind situation. Does that increase your chances of, of not being connected? That's, that's really what this slide is saying, right? The child cannot comment on the incongruence. They can't withdraw from the situation. They can't ignore the messages because this is apparent. So they're caught in a bind from which there's no escape. And the child uses, quote unquote, crazy thinking and actions to cope with the intolerable situation. So this situation breeds, again, this, this kind of view of the world that's different. Another study that's older, 1959, Brown, um, noted that after discharge from treatment, schizophrenics who only had limited subsequent contact with relatives did better than those that went back to their families. So again, maybe families. And here's why. Because what, what Brown noticed was that there seems to be a condition called expressed emotion in the family home that was an important factor. So imagine this, you come home, right, from the hospital. You've had a psychotic break, but now you're on medication. You seem to be normal. And imagine the family members go, so, dad, when you're going to lose it again and embarrass the rest of the family? When are you going to act crazy and run through the house like naked in front of everybody and embarrass us? So that hostility, that criticism, that almost brought back into this environment just waiting for failure. Does that then breed relapse? Or put more stress on the person, which of course is the last thing the person needs. More stress. So again, situations with high EE, emotional, um, expressed emotions, lead to the reappearance or worsening of psychotic symptoms. So you're throwing the person right back in the environment that almost bred it to begin with. Some causal factors. Now, I'm a big believer in this approach. This is called the diathesis stress model. And notice it says the most practical view of schizophrenia. The diathesis stress model says the disorder, is, the disorder is triggered by stressful events in someone with a diathesis. That is a predisposition of vulnerability. So you're born with a predisposition to schizophrenia, a vulnerability to schizophrenia. Set up the right set of circumstances, the right set of stressors, environmental factors, whether it be family or some traumatic event in your world, and that can trigger a schizophrenic break. So the vulnerability within the diathesis stress model can be traced to genetic, biological, and or psychological histories. So maybe the, the insult is biological. Maybe the insult is genetic in some ways. That's the predisposition 
and then add to it some kind of psychosocial stressor or upbringing or whatever, and there you go. I like the diet this stress model, just letting you know. So again, you know, what I'm trying to get at in summary is that there's a variety of different psychotic presentations. The evidence gives that there's many paths to schizophrenia, maybe not just one path, but many causes, and maybe there are different kinds, and maybe really schizophrenia should be viewed as a spectrum much like autism. And I think that I think that's where we're probably headed. What about some treatment? Let's wrap up this. Uh, we've got four slides left, and then we're going to watch some video. So what about treatment? Well, we have biological therapy. This is antipsychotic medication. We can use that, right? Um, back in the day, we might have used electroconvulsive shock therapy, but we do not use that anymore. It is not effective treatment for schizophrenia. Um, psychotherapy, we can use the psychoanalytic therapy. Again, talking about the schizophrenogenic mother, you know, from a Freudian perspective. We can use family therapy because obviously the family is involved, EE, expressed emotion. We can use some behavioral therapy, getting people to empower them to be able to take on their hallucinations or delusions and not feed into them. And even some cognitive therapy, changing thinking about the world. So again, these are the approaches. We'll just go through them kind of quickly. What we know is if we use antipsychotic medication, relapse continues to be a problem. In fact, up to 50% relapse if people go off their meds. Right? So again, it's not a fix. It's a maintenance thing over time. There's also some troublesome side effects. Um, tardive dyskinesia is a untreatable, irreversible symptom pattern consisting of involuntary, slow, rhythmic stereotype movements. And it can occur in individuals that are taking these, you know, hardcore psychotropic medication, tardive dyskinesia. Also, sexual dysfunctions. Between 30 and 80% of patients report that. So, wow, you know, I'm thinking about the world normally. I want to have relationships with people, and I'm, I can't perform because of the medication. And I don't want to take the medication because it has other side effects. So I stop taking it and then I lose track and I lose touch with reality and I fall apart. So again, it's this, this kind of endless cycle. Family therapy, again, because of EE, you know, expressed emotion, um, working on enhanced communication and interaction. At least nine months of family sessions are needed to improve the outcome, right? And these family approaches have produced some positive impacts on reducing relapse and rehospitalization, but they don't seem to, again, and how would you identify those patterns ahead of time? So it reduces those two things, but maybe nothing else. Behavioral therapy, we can use acceptance and commitment therapy. You guys heard about that in one of the previous chapters. So ACT, which is patients receive... Um, uh, ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy, you accept the fact that maybe you have some, some psychotic symptoms and that you can become committed to coping with them, you know, much like John Nash. You know, John Nash was, again, our famous, you know, a beautiful mind character, or, you know, the center of that story. Um, he uh, was on, not on medication at the end of his life. He was a college professor and he would control his 
his psychosis. So that's some of the stuff we see. Maybe we set up a token economy where I, I reward you for good behavior, for good social skills, self-care, participation in activities. Maybe I use inpatient centers or daycare kinds of centers, right? Uh, residential treatment programs, group homes, and then reward systems built within the homes to reward positive behavior. Um, when we know about this ACT, I'll just finish this up, we know that uh, people who received ACT treatment uh, reported being less troubled by psychotic symptoms, were re-hospitalized less often uh, than half the rate of those receiving treatment as usual. So again, it does seem to at least reduce relapse or at least re-hospitalization. And then the final slide is this one, has to do with cognitive enhancement therapy, right, which is really a form of cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, it was compared uh, to enriched supportive therapy in 2004, and it's a, a, a technique that employs computer-assisted training in such cognitive tasks like attention, memory, problem-solving, cognitive small group training um, with social skills and problem-solving. So kind of a combination of using virtual reality ways of rethinking about the world, restructuring your thinking, and then using social skills to back that up. So questions about any of this? All right. So thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Those folks at home, we're going to pause now. Um, look for some videos on schizophrenia to kind of get a feel for some of the symptoms you might see. That's what we're going to do in class today. So thanks a lot.